Welcome to the Game Changers for Good podcast. I'm Wahu, and this is a podcast where I interview notable and innovative game changers whose work has great social impact. In each episode, I will talk to guests who have, in some way, changed the game and made great contributions in their field of work inciting impactful social change. All in the hope to understand who they are, why they do what they do, and by the end of the episode, besides learning about the beliefs and experiences that shape them, we are able to also tease out their strategies and tips, their secret sauce as a social impact practitioner. So sit back, relax, and let's jump into our episode today. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? Or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity? Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia. Hello, my dear listeners, all 1.3 million of you. Well, (laughs) eventually. Thank you for listening. This is the first episode of the Game Changer for Good podcast. And I am very excited to be talking to our very first guest, Tama Pillay. Tama is the co-founder and advocacy director of Undi18 Malaysia. He co-founded Undi18 with Kira Yusri, And it's a youth-led movement dedicated to democratic reforms. Undi18 by now is very well-known movement in Malaysia that has successfully advocated for the amendment of Article 119, bracket 1, of the federal constitution to reduce the minimum voting age in Malaysia from 21 to 18 years old. So if you are 18 years old and you're eligible to vote in the next Malaysian election, it is partly thanks to him and his team. He led the initiative to organize Parliament Digital in 2020, the first youth-led virtual parliament sessions in the world. Since then, he has been busy creating and running multiple advocacy programs, including the 111 Initiative, a youth campaign to build towards 50% women's representation in parliament, Senate 18, a campaign to lower the age of eligibility to become a senator from 30 to 18 years old, and Undi Saksama, a campaign for equal democratic representation for every Malaysian voter. He was named one of Prestige Malaysia's 40 Under 40 in 2019, and also Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia 2021 for his efforts in championing youth voting rights in Malaysia. Tarma is a master in building effective policy advocacy programs. So please enjoy this in-depth conversation with Tarma Pillay. This is part one of a three-part interview with Tarma Pillay. You can find part two and part three from our podcast webpage. And you can also find a full-length 
episode combining part one, two, and three in our podcast webpage as well. All right, welcome to the uh, Changemaker for Good podcast. Uh, and thank you so much for being the first guest, really. Right. Um, so I'm very excited about this episode today uh, because we have had uh, many, many uh, conversations in the past and I've, I've always gotten uh, a lot of different perspective from you. A lot of, uh, I would even call wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a lot of unique views and that's why I'm so excited to be sitting down with you uh, to have this chat. But first, I would really want to start somewhere uh, that I don't think you would expect. Mm. So I have uh, done some research. Okay. I have gotten uh, I've I've gotten to talk to someone who is a good uh, source, I believe, and I want to just start with this story, right? I just want you to tell me about this. Uh, so I'm gonna give you a prompt, and you just okay. tell me what this is, okay? So it's about eating brain. Oh, okay, uh, right. eating wow. brain wow. or okay. or sago worms. <laughs> I okay. believe there are two different occasions. Yes, correct. You can start with anyone or just tell us about what is this eating brain thing? Wow, what a way to start. Um, I think, okay, firstly, thank you very much for choosing me as your first guest. Uh, I think uh, the conversations I hope will be quite interesting. Um, so the story of eating sago and eating brains, um, one was in Sarawak, so of course you, when, you, when you go to uh, Sarawak and also in Sabah, you, know, you, you always want to try out their own local delicacies, right? You want to try this out, right? And, um, and I think over here, the, the story of eating the brains was very simple. It was, I went to Hot Pot and it was on, on offer and I was like, you know what, let's try this out. I think for me... I realized, I mean, this is the mentality that I have, right? I realized that we have a very short time on, on earth, right? So why do we deny ourselves the opportunity to try these sort of experiences um, just because we are squeamish about it or just because we have not experienced it before? So if we try things out, if we don't like it, okay, then we don't do it ever again. But if we happen to enjoy it, then that's a great thing, right? You just discovered something that adds value to your life. So I think that's how I tend to go into my experiences with a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to food, where whenever I go to a foreign country, uh, a different place, or even in Malaysia, if there's a unique experience um, in terms of eating brains or eating sago worms or eating crickets or eating uh, frog or snake, whichever it is, I think my mentality is, why not? Let's try it out. I don't like it. I don't do it again. But at the very least, I've experienced it to tell the story. So it's to try. The, the key here is like, whatever it is, if it, even if it sounds uh, disgusting or uh, challenging, you try. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It really speaks to the sense of adventure that you have about life, I, I believe, right? Uh, in a way, I would say so. Um, I, I think that sort of mentality advises a lot of the stuff that I do where I try not to ask myself too much about why, right? Because when you ask yourself why, you have so many self-limiting reasons of why you have to justify to do something. Often, the nicer and faster question is to ask why not, right? Are you really going to get hurt by this? Are you going to get harmed by doing this thing? And if you realize, you know what? There's no real harm. Like, why not, right? And if there's no real impact, then why not just try it out? 
right? Um, you may not gain anything, um, or and and you know it it uh, it may not benefit you, or it could bring you great pleasure, right? So who knows? Why not just try it out? Okay. <laughs> All right. So you know from here, I want to do a complete segue sure. to something else. We're gonna start uh, right back at uh, maybe when you're young. Yeah. So I would really love to go into uh, your background, sure. right? Let listeners kind of find out who you are by looking at your background. So who you are, where do you come from? What's mm-hmm. your background? Uh, where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. Can you start with that? Sure. Um, so I'm currently 29 years old, right? Um, and I am a city boy. You know, I, I grew up in, uh, in Ampang. Um, then I moved to Cheras. So I've been in the Klang Valley for my entire life. Uh, going to schools uh, here, going to first I went to for a very short period in uh, a vernacular school called Liming. Then I went to a lot of um, national schools back to back, and then I ended up in uh, a boarding school. I think my background in terms of my family is that um, I I come from a single parent household. So my mom uh, my mom is a single parent. I think she struggled a lot to raise us. So I was very lucky that we had a good. Um, support network. Uh, my my grandmother stepped in. Uh, my uncle and my aunts uh, stepped in in terms of helping us out. Myself, my sister, in terms of how we were growing up. And I think that was very having that supportive family unit was very valuable. Where even though we were low income, even though there were struggles and there were challenges, but we had each other's back. And I think that was very, very helpful um, in you know in getting to where I am today because there's always this emphasis that. No matter how difficult it is, we will still make sure that you have a good education. We'll still make sure that you know you do well in your studies. You you are you are a good student so that you're able to excel, get scholarships, that kind of stuff. So I think that was something that was very important for me. That I felt that there was a responsibility that I had to do well so that I could help my family and I could return the favor. So I do think I am returning the favor now. Uh, in some ways, I think in many ways, right? Uh, I am helping out my family now, and but I do think that that uh, initial help and that strength from the family is is something that is very important for me. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a little bit of uh, background, I guess. Yeah. You, you well, you mentioned that you are from a, a single parent uh, family, right? Yeah. Do you think that uh, being in a single parent family has shaped you in a way that's a bit different from if you would have two parents? But you did you did say that you had a lot of support from extended family as well. Correct. So I would say that the, the, the most challenging part about being in a single parent family is that your, you know, my mom was always out working and when she came back home, she was very tired because you know, you're, you're working so hard, you have to wake up early in the morning to prepare food for us, you know, prepare our, our, clothes and, our clothes and all that so that myself and my sister could go to school and then immediately after she would get ready and go herself to work, right? So I think that was very tiring, of course. So for me, I, I was very glad that we had other members, uh, I, especially my grandma, who was a hugely instrumental part in, uh, in my growing up. So I think uh, having that family unit was very important. I, I do believe that maybe for a lot of um, single parent um, children, I do think that having a lack of a father figure, perhaps that may have been a may have been an impact. Um, I don't think for me, I, I was quite lucky that um, that I did end up going into a all male boarding school, right? Um, I do think that that 
helped me a lot in terms of learning, identifying, and also understanding what is masculinity, right? What is it to be, you know, be your own father figure, be your own, you know, figure of strength. You know, how do you define yourself and how do you act in the way of the world? Because often, you know, how children grow up is role modeling, right? You look at your parent and be like, okay, I want to be like this person because this person is someone I look up to. And that's where your parental figures come in. So I do think that that was something that I may have lacked growing up. But thankfully, uh, as a result of going to this boarding school, you know, it sort of sorted itself out uh, eventually. So I think that was a bit lucky in terms of how the gaps closed in terms of my development. Okay, so yeah. uh, since you mentioned that, yeah. uh, that is an area I really love to explore with because I think we, uh, we did have a conversation about this and I find the stories that you share about your time in the Royal Military College, yeah. RMC, really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, perhaps then we should uh, talk a bit about that. Can. Um, if you can share... How was your experience being mm-hmm. in a boarding school uh, away from home, away from family and a military school at that, right? Yeah. So it would have very, very stringent rules, I'm imagining. And, uh, you know, you did tell me about this experience you have, but, you know, you can tell me about things in general. Yeah. Uh, and also some of the incidents, you know, we can go into uh, for that sure. really, really has an impact on you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so a little bit of a background, I guess. I think that will be useful. So I... I entered a military boarding school uh, when I was in Form 4 uh, after my PMR exam. So um, it, was a, it was an application process. It was actually quite selective to get into. You had to, after your PMR, you had to get a um, good amount of grades. If, if I'm not mistaken, you have to get a minimum of six A's um, to be able to enter. You had to go through physical tests. You had to run 2.4 kilometers, do certain number of push-ups, certain number of pull-ups. Um, during the selection camp. So there was quite an intense selection mechanism just to show how, I guess, prestigious or how um, sought after it was to get into this uh, the school. Sorry, if, if I, I may interject. Sure. Now, uh, who actually decided, you know, for you to go into a, a, a boarding military school? Is yeah. it your your your, your mom, is it from so a recommendation or is it yourself? I, I would say that uh, my mom found out about it and she uh, recommended and she suggested that, you know what, how about I try out and go for this? For me, I, I thought that um, it was something that I was interested in trying out for two reasons. One was because, of course, uh, the idea of getting scholarships, right? Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when you come from a low-income background, your only way to really change your life is to get a good, you know, uh, get, good, get, get a good, good career, uh, and that means you have to go get a good degree. I think that, that part matters, right? So I think that was one element uh, where if you go to this boarding school, you have access to a lot of these opportunities. But the second thing was, of course, you know, being a young person, um, I think the idea of militarism, the idea of being in, in the Navy, uh, for, for me personally, I think that was very, very attractive. Um, I remember playing with all these action figures when I was a kid, and I, was, and I thought to myself, wow, that's something I would love to do. So if I join the, uh, the army or the navy eventually, you know, as a result of joining uh, RMC, I'll be like, you know what, I'll be more than happy. So I think that was my mentality at that time. So which is why when, uh, when my mom suggested, hey, this is an opportunity that's there, I was like, yeah, let's try this out. Let's go for it. Right. Uh, but of course, it's not an easy process. It's actually, it was actually very, very challenging um, because when you enter a military boarding school, um, the lifestyle completely changes. 
right? And there was a number of way where, ways where it was different. So for example, the composition of people were different. So I came from an urban um, sekolah menengah, menengah kebangsaan, right? So when you're in an urban one, you look at your classmates, they are extremely multiracial, right? You know, if there was a one Malaysia propaganda, you could just take a video of my class and be like, wow, Malaysia is a beautiful place, right? It's, it was like that, right? You know, um, so we had a very balanced number of, um, you know, uh, Malay students, Chinese students, Indian students, right? Uh, so we had, we had a good, good balance. We had, you know, we had all sorts of, you know, um, people coming together and we were good friends. There was no sort of racial uh, friction between them. So I thought that was something that I was used to. And the moment I go, went into um, this boarding school, immediately I was a minority, right? In my batch, there were roughly only about um, 6 to 10% of non-Malays in the entire batch. Um, it also meant that there were many, many um, people who were in my batch who had never met a non-Malay before, right? Many of them came from places like uh, Kelantan or Trungano where it was mono-ethnic, right? Um, so all they had and all they understood uh, about non-Malay Malaysians was that, oh, okay, these were stereotypes that we had. Right, that Indians spoke in a certain way, Chinese, you know, acted in a certain way. Right, they, they they only had like these very racial stereotypes. So I think that was one thing that you had to overcome. Right, how do you bridge that gap? Number two, of course, was the fact that you're away from your family. Right, and that means you have to be completely self-reliant. It meant that you have to you have to wash your own clothes. You have to iron your own your, your you have to iron your own clothes. You have to get everything perfectly ready. You have to study on your own. You have to be self-disciplined. These are all things that you had to adapt and learn by yourself. And I think that was quite a, quite a challenge to learn and, uh, and pick up, right? Considering that, you know, when you're at home, you only learn the bare minimum, right? You only know the, the basic stuff of like, okay, let me clean up my shoe, right? I didn't even iron my clothes before that. <laughs> so go, jumping in was a huge culture shock. I think that was a big challenge. But also I think the, the last thing was just the lifestyle itself. It was so physically intensive, right? Every um, evening we would go on, we would go on a run, right? I would have to wake up. This was in my junior year, right? Every morning I would wake up at about four or four thirty a.m. Uh, every morning, right? Uh, get up, go downstairs, uh, take a bath in like the freezing cold water. The water came straight from like the, the like a nearby hill, freezing cold. Get up, get ready, go and report to our senior and say that okay, we're all ready and uh, and. Uh, uh, with all our uniforms and then we start cleaning up the entire the entire floor right so that was our routine we clean up in the morning if let's say we did not clean it up perfectly then we'll get punishments we'll get uh, you know push-ups um, uh, knuckle you know uh, all sorts of physical punishments and then we would go to class sweaty and tired so imagine like your entire day is de is designed around this sort of military regiment and when you eat food, I think the, even the food was something you had to get adapted to because it was not your home food. It's not a food that you're familiar with. So I, I, I know that during the first few months of me being there, I think I lost a good 15 kgs um, just I think over two months or so. So I think that was a huge change in terms of how I was as a person, even immediately. But of course, the larger challenge with an institution like this is the culture of, um, of, I think, ragging, the culture of uh, physical punishments. Um, so we had, there was a many, many incidents of, of that. So you, when you put all of this together, right, it was a real pressure cooker, a real challenge for you to be able to survive and, um, and, 
and not even thrive, right? You're just trying to survive. So I remember at one point, I was just thinking to myself, I just want to survive one more week, right? And I just took it one week at a time because it, there was a certain routine on a week by week basis. So I told myself, I'm going to, st- I'm going to hold on for one week and a week and what, a week. What are the most stressful things that, you know, makes you feel like, okay, I have, you know, I have to come up with a strategy like to deal with it that I have to look at it week by week. What are the most th- intense pressure? I think the, the challenge that you all face uh, is together, right? I think that's something that they, that they emphasize where, where everyone has this collective, as I mentioned, you know, the shared um, stress where you're studying. At the same time, you are, um, you're maybe not getting the, the tastiest food. At the same time, you are going through all this physical training and all that stuff. But I do think that the element that makes you feel very alone is that one is that, is that, um, that element where you intensely feel that you are a minority, right? And, I'm, and I never felt that ever in my entire life, that I was someone different, that I am basically alone over here, right? So there was that extreme racialization that I felt um, you know, uh, then. And I think that made it very difficult because when you are alone and when you have tough times, you want to go to a community that can relate to you, right? But when this community or this group was essentially racialized and hostile, you feel very alone. I think that was one difficult part. Um, of course, the other element is that there's a culture of seniority. Um, and so when there is in a lot of punishments and when you get in trouble, you know, you really have to be mentally strong enough that you can accept, you know, when you get scolded at, when you get punished, you got to be like, you know what, I can handle this. Tomorrow is going to, going to be a different day and all these issues will be done by tomorrow. You just got to tell yourself that this, that this problem is now, I just got to face it and get over it. So I think that was something I had to develop over time, but not many people were able to adapt. We had, if not mistaken, we had like a 30 to 40% uh, dropout rate, you know, within the first three to four months, like 30, 30-40% of the entire batch just dropped out. So I would say that that mentality is something that I had to learn over time in order for me to survive like my junior year. So definitely not easy. Yeah. So can we go into the, the ragging part? Sure. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to overstate. Uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to over... Um, dramatize dramatize it, right? Uh, because I do think that there are also other schools with, uh, with a similar culture. And I do know that right now um, in, in, uh, in, in, my, in the school, there is less of that culture now at the moment. But at that time, there was a real, uh, you know, there was a real uh, tradition where if let's say you were found to, uh, you know, to mess up or you did something that was wrong, Right. Uh, not only will you get this exercise kind of punishments, but you also get um, you know certain level of uh, like uh, you get beaten up, for example. Right. You get punched. You get kicked. Uh, this was something that was quite normal over there. And of course, how it was done was in a manner that uh, was not excessive. Right. So they were very careful that you know you you don't see your bruises on your face and all that stuff. So it's it's only in areas that's that's not visible. So I think this was the part that there was a bit of. Uh, I guess there, there was a bit of uh, um, a culture and tradition that, that informed how this ragging was done. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't really want to go into too much detail, I think, because I think that will just, uh, I, it will just make things a bit more, a bit too uh, messy, I think. But the, I think that was the, that was the, the, the culture that was accepted um, as being part of the school at that time. 
you know when we when we talk about this uh, in our conversation right you you somehow are able to process those uh, incidences and and somehow become stronger yeah right so i would really love for you to to share that like you know how does it shape you you know what do you gain from it like yeah. you know there there are people who experience things like this and and uh, you know they they might become a bit broken and yeah. you know they they lose t- uh, lose trust on some things or some yeah. people but you seem to have gained from it mm-hmm. uh, so if you can share for sure i do think that every person has their own trauma right and each person's trauma is valid right um, but i do think that different people process and go through that difficult challenges and this trauma in in um, in their own individual personalized manner so for me at least when i when i experienced um, you know these incidents um and i went and i went through um a lot of these challenges right the physical punishments mm. uh you know some of the beatings and all that stuff i think that gave me an idea that one is i'm able to handle it right i think that there's always this this mentality often in in life right you always feel hey i'm not strong enough to handle this but whenever i come up with issues that i face now like today i think to myself you know what i've handled worse things back then i'm strong enough to handle this today right so you always have that frame of reference where you're like okay i'm able to push through whatever challenges i'm facing now because i've gone through worse so i think that's one element right i think the also second element is that you have this mentality where you I think for me I I accept that these things will pass right whether it's good times whether it's bad times it will pass and the most important thing is that what are you fighting for and what are you pushing towards I think that is also an an important mentality right so similar to when I said said just now right I was trying to look at things at survival on a week by week basis mm-hmm. so for me I think it is also something that I use now where no matter what hiccups or what temporary challenges it is i realize as long as i have a larger plan or a larger goal that i want to try to achieve these temporary setbacks are just temporary setbacks they do not define me they do not stop me they slow me down maybe but i will overcome right i think that is something that that that, that was very powerful that i managed to learn from that situation um and I think it's 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 been quite helpful nowadays, right? You know, when you no matter what challenges you face, you you remember that and you're like, okay, I can overcome this. Yeah, I I can imagine, and especially with the you know some of the things that you're trying to do, right? I mean, yeah. the the scale of it, uh, you know, starting a company, running, uh, you know, so many campaigns, movements that want to change the country, essentially, yeah. right? Uh, I, would, I would see how, how much of, cha- uh, uh, you know, the challenge mm. that you can face and, and what this attitude of seeing the big picture, mm-hmm. right? That, you, you know, all these challenges, when you face it, it will pass and there's something to aim for. Um, that's really a big lesson that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone can learn when they're young. Uh, besides that, right, I just want to, uh, I'm, I'm quite curious when you go through uh, training like that, right? A couple of years, spent a couple of years in, in, a, in a boarding school, uh, which is so strict with so many rules. Um, do you bring all those discipline now, you know, now into your life? How does it look like? Mm. You know, are you such a disciplined person because of that experience? That's a very interesting question. Uh, and I really like that question because um, I think different people react differently to that. 
I know that there are some people who become extremely rule-abiding and extremely disciplined, but I have to be quite honest, it's had an opposite impact on me. <laughs> um, I realize rules are able to be broken, right? I think right. that's what I realize, you know, mm. that even in the most so-called stressful and tough of situations, one is you can bend the rules a little bit, right? There, there, you know, there are, there are things that you can, you can sort of play around with, right? That's, that's one. Number two is that I also realized that some rules are just rules in your mind, right? They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're not real, right, in a way. That essentially the, the punishments for it is bigger in your imagination than in reality, right? I, I think so. I think that's also been one of the things that has helped me sometimes um, in terms of pursuing my activism where... Sometimes, you, you know, we have so much fears, right? We can't speak up against the government. We can't, you know, we can't go down and protest. We can't go and uh, do, you know, we can't go and argue about certain things, right? And in the end, you'll realize this, that the consequences are mostly imaginary, right? And we create this self-limitation because we are so afraid. But in reality, the consequences are actually very small. And most people can actually handle the consequences, right? So I think that's something that I've learned that even in that fragile cocoa environment, you can break certain rules and accept the consequences, right? So that's something that, you know, I think more people should also think about, right? Like which rules are real and which rules have huge consequences, right? Like, for example, don't be corrupt, don't do a crime, right? I think these, these are things that we can all agree on. But speaking up, you know, um, voicing out your opinion, going out to a protest, right? Uh, pushing back against government policies, right? Most of these things are self-limiting beliefs, right? And maybe not, not just rules, but also what, what, we, what we define as our own life and we define as our, our own rules, right? I can't achieve this. I can't push for that promotion, right? These are all self-limiting beliefs that it's all in our imagination. So how do we break through it? So I think ironically, you know, I, it's, I've learned the opposite um, you know, and 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 being less of a less of a rule following person. Well, which is a, a great point of view as well. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, if you want to be uh, an activist, right, on any issues, that seems to be the prerequisite that you need to be able to look at uh, current rules, laws, and say that okay, it can be changed. It needs to be uh, broken down sometimes and introduce yeah. something new and something better, right? Correct. Exactly. Okay. So. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? Or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity? Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia.